0: This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you the listener when you visit audibletrial.com/science. To try Audible free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com/science to receive your free audiobook today, or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com.
1: The International Science Radio Show.
0: We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths,
1: the truths.
0: Toxicology, astrocytology, magnetism, the dark side, genetically
2: engineered potatoes, planetoid,
0: planetoid.
2: I love that word.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, crowdfunding science, flying albatrosses, and Lovid. But first up, here's the news. Edison rides again. Last week, I reported on how a video of vibrating surfaces in a room could be used to reconstruct the actual sound from the room. The researchers used a 50th anniversary recording of Thomas Edison reenacting his first 1877 recording of Mary Had a Little Lamb, performed for a news film crew in 1927. It turns out that while the original tinfoil 1877 recording was lost, another tinfoil recording from 1878 was preserved in a museum, but was too fragile to be played. In Edison's invention, the tinfoil was wrapped around a wooden cylinder and dented by a stylus as the cylinder rotated for recording. It was unwound and stored flat, and then rewound around the cylinder for playback. A team at the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory at the University of California have reflected light off the surface of the tinfoil instead of using a stylus and have been able to recover a very noisy copy of the recording. Here's some of the recovered sound of Thomas Edison in 1878 reciting Mary Had a Little Lamb. The tinfoil recording has seven folds which damage the recording. It was judged too fragile to be wrapped around a cylinder, as it was originally intended to be played, so it had to be scanned flat, using a special microscope and a moving platform. The grooves in the tinfoil encode the sound in an up-and-down movement from the surface, instead of the side-to-side movement used in 20th century disc records. This means the microscope needs to be sensitive to the depth of the grooves. They used a colour-coded confocal microscope, to image the third dimension. A color-coded confocal microscope takes advantage of the fact that different colors will be focused at different depths by the same lens. Detecting where each color is in focus gives you depth information. The image was processed to model where a stylus would have traced on the tin foil had it been wrapped around a cylinder to reproduce the sound it would have made. The recording opens with what sounds like two brass instruments being played followed by Mary Had a Little Lamb and Old Mother Hubbard, followed by laughter. The technique of scanning and reconstructing in software has been used for the 1888 recordings of Bell and Tainter with their wax cardboard cylinders, and later for Edison's solid wax cylinders. But these are not the oldest recordings. Using a needle that vibrated by sound, the phonautograph etched sound waves into paper coated with soot from an oil lamp. Using the same microscope and computer reconstruction techniques, here's the digital version of the world's oldest known sound recording, made by Frenchman Leon Scott in 1860, of the song or Claire de la Lune. Sydney Mini Maker Faire is coming to the Powerhouse Museum for the weekend of the 16th and 17th of August. The museum has put up a list of groups bringing projects to show. The list includes Electric Cars, Biohack Sydney, Desktop Circuit Board Printers, Toy Death Circuit Bending, Easy Blues Bluetooth Hacking, Freematics Car Telemetry, Freetronics Open Source Electronics, 3D Printers, Underwater Robots, Origami, Raspberry Pis, Solar Powered Cars... And much, much more. Two days of amazing things you can make. Speaking of which, is it a bird or is it a plane? It's a flown. The flown is a do-it-yourself H-frame that lets you fly your smartphone as a quadrocopter. The unmanned aerial vehicle has a wooden frame with a battery, Arduino controller and four motorized propellers. Your Android phone acts as both the camera and the radio control. The phone in the air is controlled by another phone on the ground, connected by Bluetooth or Wi-Fi with an Android app. The artist Lot Amoros and engineers Cristina Navarro and Alexander Oliver won the Next Things award in 2013 for inventing the flown in Barcelona. The flown now has its own Instructables page, which shows that the parts will cost you barely more than $100. There are international competitions for drone photography run by National Geographic. And amazing drone pictures can be found on DroneStagram. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now, crowdfunding. Maria O is co-founder and CEO of Fund Science, Australia's first not-for-profit crowdfunding platform dedicated to supporting science research, training and innovation. She gave a talk at the last Biohack Sydney meeting, and I caught up with her afterwards, and I began by asking her what Fun Science is all about.
2: Fun Science is Australia's first non-for-profit crowdfunding platform dedicated to supporting science research, training, and innovation.
0: What inspired you to start Fun Science?
2: So crowdfunding has been used by musicians, um, artists, filmmakers, small businesses, and even non-for-profit organisations to finance their projects. Crowdfunding is a way of financing a project by small donations from a large group of people or the crowd. But crowdfunding for science is still in the very early stages and is still very nascent in Australia but it's been receiving increasing interest and support from the researchers and institutes with the current financial strain in the research field um, worldwide.
0: There's other science crowdfunding platforms around, are there?
2: In Australia, we're the first profit crowdfunding platform that's dedicated to science research, but worldwide there are a number of platforms that already existing and also on the rise.
0: All crowdfunding platforms that I've looked at, like Kickstarter for example or Possible, they all charge a commission, a percentage of the money that comes in to sustain themselves to make a profit. What about fund science?
2: Our mission is simply to fund science and we want to maximise the amount of money that is directed to research and so we charged no fees, no commission, nothing and we were actually set up as a non-for-profit charity and registered with the Australian Charities and Non-For-Profit Commission.
0: So how does your funding come in?
2: <laughs> so we're self-funded at this point. Uh, Fund Science has been funded by my two co-founders Dr. Shindu and Dr. Tristan Ricky, and myself and it's our investment into the future of Australian Science
0: for the supporters, how does it work? What do they see when they go on the site?
2: So there will be a list of projects to which the supporters can donate.
0: So they'll see a list of things they can donate. So if you're on the other side, if you're a scientist, do you have to go through your institution or can you be a lone scientist? Or what are the requirements for you to be able to start a project on fund science?
2: So we're open to both academic researchers and citizen scientists based in Australia. Um, But the researchers will have to verify their identity with Science, and the projects themselves will also be reviewed by an internal committee to ensure that firstly, the project itself is in fact a science research project and secondly, the, the researchers have the resources to meet the goals and expectations of the project.
0: With other crowdfunding, they're usually companies that are making products their games or their food or their their something that they're they're going to produce. But this is science. So there's not so much of a tangible reward for supporters. So what are the rewards for the supporters? Is it a paper at the end?
2: (laughs) The greatest reward for the donors would be the engagement in the process of research, but the researchers may also provide the donors with tangible rewards such as invitations to workshops, seminars, and visits to the labs.
0: Some crowdfunding platforms are all or nothing. If you don't reach a target, you don't get anything at all. Is that how it works on Fund Science?
2: The funding model on Fund Science works slightly differently. We have adopted what is called uh, stretch goal models, and it basically works by stretching out or increasing the funding targets as they are met. So this is based on two findings. Firstly, it's very difficult to overfund a project that has already been successfully funded. And secondly, our people want to be part of something that is already successful. And so it's very difficult to fund a project which doesn't actually peak in its early stages.
0: So you're saying that you could have quite a low funding goal to start with that will be successfully met because it's not too ambitious. And then if you get that, you can have a more ambitious one and then a more ambitious one after that. And so basically up to the generosity or interest of your donors, you can achieve more and more because you've thought through what you would do if you only had enough money. That's right. What's the role of philanthropy here? Because this is something we don't have a lot of in Australia other than regular charities, but in America, they have a tradition of extremely wealthy people supporting good causes. Is that related to what you're doing?
2: I think so. And I think crowdfunding has a potential to change the demographic of philanthropists in Australia. With crowdfunding, we're asking for small donations. And so philanthropy is not just something for the wealthy, but for anybody and everybody.
0: Can you tell me some of the pilot projects that you'll be starting with? What do, you, do you have some people signed up, some projects signed up, some examples?
2: So Fund Science will be partnering with the Sydney Biohackers to actually craft funds to set up a community lab space in Sydney. This will be Australia's first community lab space and we've already been receiving a lot of interest and attention from the media, corporate sponsors and also the government. So it's a very exciting project.
0: That is exciting, a biohacking lab where they can make stuff that will be safely contained and they can just exercise their creativity legally and safely.
2: Yes, most definitely.
0: For applied research, it's very easy for donors to see what's going to happen at the end of the research, that there's going to be this development made or this thing built or this investigation made. But for more basic science it may not be so obvious what the end point is because the researcher might not know what they're going to find because that's why they're doing it. Do you think there's a way for those type of researchers to explain to the people supporting them what they'll be doing?
2: That's right. I think our crowdfunding for basic research will also provide the researchers with the opportunity to actually communicate their research to the general public. And I think it will actually also come down to the storytelling and telling a story that is relevant, appealing and enticing to the public, which may be actually different to the criteria used by the funding agencies and research councils for their distribution of funding.
0: So where would people look online for Fund Science?
2: So Fund Science will be launching on the 14th of August at www.funscience.org.au. Our uh, Fun Science and the Sydney Biohackers will be at the Makers' Fair so at the Powerhouse Museum. So please come along and support Fun Science and the Sydney Biohackers. And please support Australian science by supporting Fun Science.
0: Maria O, oh, thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Ian.
0: That was Maria O oh, talking about Fun Science, the new crowdfunding platform for science. You can find out more at www.funscience.org.au. Look carefully for the Science Podcast crowdfunding campaign. Fun Science launches on the 15th of August, 2014, and that's when all the campaigns go live. You can meet Maria at the Sydney Mini Maker Fair at the Powerhouse Museum on the 16th and 17th of August at the Biohacker Sydney stand. Next up, John August on flying albatrosses. How do you fly an albatross? Albatrosses fly themselves over the ocean, hardly flapping their wings, by making use of the differing wind close to the ocean and far above it. Here's John August explaining the mystery of how albatrosses can fly without flapping their wings.
3: Albatrosses in the ocean don't actually flap their wings to fly. They use what's called dynamic soaring. As the wind blows over the ocean, some of it drags against it, so that the wind is slower at lower heights and increases as you ascend away from the ocean. It's why sailing ships had tall sails, to catch the faster moving air high above the ocean. Albatrosses dip in and out of this region of slow moving air in order to keep themselves flying. They need to steer in order to do this, presumably using their tails and wing tips, but this uses a lot less energy than flapping your wings. They also have other evolutionary adaptations to facilitate this sort of flight over the oceans, including the ability to drink salt water and flying while half asleep. But it is the aerodynamics of dynamic soaring that have most fascinated people. People are looking into dynamic soaring to keep drones aloft with less energy, and they're also looking into what albatrosses do in a lot more detail. Some time ago, a friend of mine, Ian Bryce, pointed me towards an article in IEEE Spectrum, the nearly effortless flight of the Albatross, describing how Johannes Traugott, Anna Nesterova and Gottfried Sachs collaborated to put transponders on Albatross birds in order to track exactly what they do. Modelling of this has been going apace. J. Philip Barnes of the Pelican Aero Group outlined his work on the web and it's from this I'll be trying to illustrate the mechanism. If you imagine you're driving along in a car with a sunroof, holding a model plane just below the opening, the plane stays fixed. But as soon as it rises above the level of the sunroof, it catches the air which is moving relative to it, at the forward speed of the car, and descends. Eventually, after rising and having its speed slow down to equal to the surrounding air, it will then glide to the ground. This is what happens when the albatross rises into the increasing wind. So far, so good. A little more difficult to understand is how the bird can gain energy descending into a lesser wind. Well, it depends on the direction you're flying in. If you're descending into less wind with the wind behind you, you'll have the speed carried over from where you were previously and be able to generate lift. We can turn our picture of the car around. Imagine you have a glider approaching the hole in the roof of a gymnasium with the wind behind you. The wind has pushed your plane so it is travelling at the same speed as the wind and is descending. But as soon as it enters the still air of the gymnasium through the hole, it has the velocity of the wind above and can generate lift. The model plane can use this lift to turn around and approach the hole again from the other direction and then use its ailerons to push itself through the hole, after which it then catches the wind like our original model plane did going through the sunroof. Maybe you could even do this with a model plane. I don't know if the wind would push you too far away from the hole. The albatross does something close to this, but because the wind gradient is continuous, it doesn't really have to use the aileron equivalent. It just flows in a cycle. And so, the albatross can fly without flapping its wings.
0: That was John August on Flying Albatrosses. John has been a long-time contributor to Diffusion, and you can read John's blog at johnaugust.com.au. And now, Tali and Kyle from New York City, who form the artist duo, Lovid. They spoke about their project at Dorkbot Sydney, and I spoke to them on the street outside the pub afterwards. They began the interview by asking me what I understood from their presentation about their art project. So, my summary of what I understood you to be saying is that you're working on a long term project with several other artists of quite different. So, you're working with a choreographer, a porcelainist.
1: He might object to that sir. <laughs> <laughs> know. You never know.
0: Okay. I'm um, trying to remember if there was a, a third type. You're working mm. with. No. Um, that was Just it. Just us. We're a- kind of y- both yeah. of you. Several different types. Yes, ourselves. several different yeah. types. And so you want to have a piece where there's synthesizers that are triggered by proximity of movement, embedded in ceramics, and so maybe ceramicist is better. <laughs> a ceramics. We
4: call him a ceramics. I call him a ceramics. That's the I when looked it I go, looked a up. I looked it up. Once God, you look word. it up, you can't. You That's can't. This on a down. podcast, you
1: know.
0: And so that there'll be dances that will be different distances. So you're looking at personal space and public space and social space, and you're exploring all of those themes in a big artwork with all of these different things and you're doing the synthesizing the electronics and coordinating the whole thing yeah and getting the grants to get it all paid for
1: yeah yeah is
0: that about right
1: that's about that's one that's an eighth of what we do yeah that's That's what what I That's 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 for this project that's the best yeah that is the whole thing yes
0: so you need to say anything
1: exactly (laughs) you said it all no I mean I guess I guess for me what's interesting to think about is where does this project or we stand in relation to other things. Uh, You know, we are visitors, so we want to know. We would love to share our experience, but we also want to know what's the dialogue. So, you know, we know a little bit of what's happening here, but it would be good for us to know what. Yeah. So we don't want to be redundant,
0: you know. Did you... Do you think you got a little bit of an idea of that? I'm sorry, but I gotta say, like some of the other off, people right? presenting, no, it's a
4: little bit. It's it's hard to know how representative yeah. is it, it is. Yeah. Um, given that it was, I guess three pe- three artists. That's true. But
1: and we know some it, other people who work. We know yeah, some other too.
4: people who work here as well. Yeah. Definitely, a lot of the ideas that came up from the group right after us were very relevant to a lot of things that we're interested in okay. codes and communication and how meaning is placed onto symbols are things that we explore a lot in various ways and are a big part of our interest in video in general I think that there is a specific encoding of things and then also in using any sensors is sort of a way of translating or encoding information into other things. And the idea of using that to make art also fits well with that of really taking a translation and producing something that has some relevance to the original, but also is taking its own path from there.
0: Um, So where did the interest in putting the electronics in ceramics come from?
1: Uh, well, we've been always interested in objects and specifically technological objects and from the beginning we wanted to challenge the kind of preconceived ideas of what those objects might be. Kind of At the time, you know, like ten years ago they were boxy, grey things, now they're kind of flat, shiny things. And we've always wanted to play with those ideas and make them colourful or fragile and inverted. And then uh, thinking of in a more basic, kind of almost domestic way, where ceramic has been specifically had a place in people's lives through centuries, and wanted to have that kind of dialogue, bring it, make that connection between a material that's you know very um, natural and also has been around for so long with um, technology.
4: That that part seems to relate to the third presentation tonight about which was really about objects and sort of archaic forms which in some way ceramic is we're not, we're interested in technology more broadly as a means of human communication and development and achievement of other goals that are not always not always achieved by technology as a single pathway of development but actually can take many different forms, is something that I find more interesting than just things that develop in one single direction. So that's, that's part of what led to our interest in ceramics, even before this project, of sort of unexplored avenues of technology. And ceramics has its own technology that's completely distinct, which is another thing that interests us as well.
0: And the synthesizers that you're building are these analog synthesizers? Mm-hmm,
1: yes. The the main the synthesized component is analog. Yeah.
4: But again, in in the same way, the use of analog circuitry is also something that doesn't necessarily follow the course in which right. mainstream technology with air quotes has has taken things recently. And we are very interested in that, but not as a single course that we only believe in analog or anything like that and that was one of the questions tonight was about use use of Arduinos in this and yes we'll use whatever technologies are, are required to do the things we want or whatever technologies make sense or don't make sense to do that but we definitely have some interest in the element of this type of technology of analog that has certain types of uncertainty built into it that are a chaotic element that depends on temperature or on these other variables that are much more difficult to predefine and control rather than putting in randomness into a system later on.
0: At that point, they had to run off to look after a crying baby. That was Lovid at Dorkbot. Tali and Kyle have a long-term project with a choreographer and a ceramist to create a piece where there are synthesizers that are triggered by proximity and movement. Embedded in ceramics, with dancers that will be interacting with the ceramics at different distances to explore the themes of personal space, social space, and public space. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to Science at diffusionradio.com, that's science, at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like Diffusion Science Radio's Facebook page and rate us on iTunes. Contributing this week was John August. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and to Triple H in Hornsby-Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for more information about this week's show. You support Diffusion by downloading a free book from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free book of their choice from audibletrial.com science. Or look for the donate button on www.diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. Or go to fundscience.org.au and look for us there. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science-wondering, next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
5: Wrap a rubber band around an empty shoebox, listen, listen, you hear nothing. Strike the rubber band with your finger quickly, listen, listen, you hear something. Now Tony and his guitar will show you how to control the pitch of a sound by changing the vibration. He raises the pitch by tightening the string. And he lowers the pitch by loosening the string. He raises the pitch by shortening the string with his fingers. He lowers the pitch by lengthening the string with his fingers. He raises the pitch by using a light string. Oh, pretty. And he lowers the pitch by using a heavy string. Boys and girls, you've just heard a scientific demonstration which proves that the pitch of a sound is changed by changing the vibration. Vibration! vibration.